Alright, Hadir, welcome everybody. Parashat Teruma. And uh, as Ms. Weiss was afraid that this would be a boring parasha, my job here tonight, I hope, my goal is to show you that this is the furthest thing from boring. And I really, if you read it in a certain way, you'll see that this is one of the deepest parashiyot. And like I said in my text that I sent out, is that this week's parasha is not just about physical blueprints, like you might think at first glance. It's really about spiritual blueprints in terms of getting closer to God and meditating. So the reason that I say that is because, you know, we're not going to read through the whole thing because the words are, are you know, if, if, if we had more time, maybe we could. But I'm going to try to speak from outside the text. And I, this is going to be a, a discussion as well about things that I've been reading and studying recently. Hey, Do you mind if I, like, video you at some point? No problem at all. Yeah. So, uh, so. Yeah, so, right here, thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Elliot's my PR guy. Hello, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, the way the, the parasha starts off, first of all, right, tell B'nai Israel to take teruma. We're, we're, we're just going to read through the beginning of it. Right? Take this this nedava this uh, this thing that yeah sorry page two thirty nine parashat tiruma right and you're gonna take this this stuff and you're gonna you're gonna build something out of it so this is a collective effort on the part of bnei israel and just of note what does it say this is just an important pasuk right this is like the famous thing that everybody knows you learn this when you're a kid what how do you how do you interpret these words hey Right? How do you interpret these words? What does it mean? How do you interpret that? Good. Make me a sanctuary and I will dwell. And I may dwell among them. Among them. Right? So wouldn't it make more sense to say, I would dwell. Wow. Good to see you guys. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Here, I have three humashim, three seats for you guys over here. Thank you for coming. <laughs> All right, this is gonna be fun. Oh wow, great. So so uh, so everybody could open up to page two thirty nine. Elliot, you move here. No, no, it's all right. She's she's here right here. She went. No, no, it's fun though. It's all right. You know, one sitting here. Yeah, yeah. We got a, a full page two thirty nine. Um. If you don't have a hamash, maybe there's more outside. Sorry about that. Right? So, we were just saying that the Mishkan and its blueprints, its physical blueprints, are not really just physical blueprints. <coughs> you ever hear of Rabbi Solomon D. Sassoon? You know who he was? Rabbi Solomon D. Sassoon was the rabbi of, he was known as the Rothschild of the East. Right? What's the Roth? Who are the Rothschilds? Anybody know? The, the wealthiest people, right? Anybody ever hear of them before? The, the Rothschilds were the, the, the big philanthropist Jewish people that lived in uh, in Europe. At, uh, about, exactly. The Rothschilds. Exactly, the family. <laughs> now, you have Rabbi Salomon D. Sassoon's family. They actually lived in India for a time. They lived in... Thank you so much, Esther. They lived in Africa. They lived in all these different places, and they had a tremendous amount of manuscripts. He was a tremendous Tamit Hacham. He was the rabbi of Rabbi Shama and Rani Bennett, two people who are real fixtures in the shul. And his, he was a big meditator. He was a person, I think, that really spent a lot of time develop, developing himself spiritually in addition to halachically and everything else. 
So his interpretation of these pesukim of this parashat teruma is that the physical blueprints that you're reading about are not really just physical; they're also spiritual blueprints in terms of getting closer to God. So we said in the, or just now, So clearly, the Mishkan is not just about God dwelling in it. It's betocham. What does betocham mean? Among them, among Bnei Yisrael. So you see clearly here that already the text is hinting to us it's about God dwelling among you as a people. So instead of reading through every pasuk, I just want to explain outside the text what's going on here with the Mishkan. So first of all, if you if you lay out the blueprints of the Mishkan, what does it look like? You have, let's say, right in the center of it is the uh, Mizbah HaZahav, right? The golden altar. And it says in the, in the Torah later on, they should put ketoret on your nose, God. It's as though God has a nose. And that's the Mizbah HaZahav. Then over here, you have the Menorah, right? That's like one of the eyes, because the Menorah gives light. What's right over here? You have the Lechem Apanim on the Shulchan, which is to be seen and not to be eaten. Also something related to sight. And then below the nose, which is the Mizbah HaZahav, you have the Mizbah HaNehoshet, which we say to God, right? At Kurbani Lahmi, God says, my, my food, the Kurban, which is like my food. So that's God's mouth, God's nose, God's eyes. And then what do you have above the eyes? You have in the innermost sanctuary, the Kodesh HaKodashim has what in it? Has the, the Kirubim that are on the Aron HaKodesh, right? And inside of that is the Luhot, the Luhot Aberit, the tablets of the covenant. And what's hovering on top of that, that Aron? You have the cloud of God, right? Which is saying, this is saying something to you. The, the, if, in case you haven't gotten it this far, this far it's, it's a face. It's almost like a physical representation, Kibiachol, of God. Well, obviously, we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to have a, a physical form, a representation of God. It's alluding to it. And if I tell you, that you have this face of God and you have this cloud hovering above it, what is that the equivalent of in the human face? The brain or the mind, right? So there's something going on here about the presence of God being expressed to us as though it's like God's... This is from Rabbi David Foreman, actually. Really? Phenomenal, oh, phenomenal yeah. idea. Who else? You know? He also connects the yeah. Mishkan yes. to Shabbat and the creation and how it's like out of time and out Yes, out we're going to get to that. We're going to yeah. talk about that. That's going to be like Especially the, the punchline of the class, I hope. <laughs> right? So so you have... No, it's okay. It's great. Exactly. We, we both love the same. <laughs> you can leave now if you, if you want. Right? So so you have the... It's almost like when we walk into the Mishkan, we see the face of God. Right? So we have this mind of God as like the cloud. Beyond that, what else are we seeing? We're seeing that everything that, that's going on inside the Kodesh HaKodashim itself, what do we have? We have the Aron. The Aron is made out of wood, right? And what's on top of it is golden, a golden cover, the Kaporet. On top of that are the Kirubim, right? The cherubs. And what else do you have in there? And in the cloud of, of, of God's glory. You, you go out one emanation, we'll call it, right? You go from the Kodesh HaKodashim into the Kodesh. It's almost as though, and I would say it is as though, the Aron as a whole bifurcates into two. What do I mean when I say that? Well, it becomes one thing of gold and one thing of wood. Right? What's the thing of gold? Minora. The menorah. Right? Yeah. And what's the thing of wood? Is the and, and it has a little bit of gold on it. 
is a mizbah hazahav. So, and if you look at the words that the, the Torah uses to describe each of these, the 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 keruvim need to be miksha. They need to be made out of one piece and hit out of a, with a hammer. And it uses the same word for the menorah. And then you look at the way that it describes the zerzahav saviv, the, the the crown around the the mizbah hazahav. It's the same thing on the aron. So basically, instead of going into every single detail, just accept that idea that everything is an outer emanation of God from that center, from the Kodesh Kodashim. So you go from the Kodesh Kodashim to the Kodesh, and then even further beyond, outside of that, and what else do you get? You get further emanations. But everything is kind of like decreasing in quality at that point. It's going to be Nehoshet instead of Zahav. The way that things are described, again, is, is really clearly... Exactly. Your your job is to see everything as an emanation from inwards towards the outside. Now, this stuff sounds a little bit esoteric, but I think now it'll get a little bit more practical for you guys. So, does anybody know, what do you have separating each level of Kedusha? At every interface of Kedusha, there's going to be a certain symbol from one to the next. Right, so from the first level of Kedusha to the second, what do we have on, what's the holiest thing in the Mishkan? The holiest object that everything's centered around? Tablets. The tablets, right? Because what are the tablets? The tablets symbolize the covenant between us and God. That is the utmost holiness that we have in the Mishkan. So you look at those tablets, you say, okay, what's housing them? They're being housed by the Aron. On top of the Aron is the Kirubim. Right? What's so important about these Kirubim? Well, if you look in the text and you read closely, you're going to see Kirubim two other times after this. Does anybody know when? Those are at the interface of Kedusha. So you have Kirubim on top of the Aron. You have Kirubim separating the Kodesh HaKodashim from the Kodesh, right? Where are these Kirubim knitted into the Parochet? The Parochet is the, is the curtain that separates the Kodesh HaKodashim from the Kodesh. Alright, so there's something about at every interface of Kedusha you have Kirubim. So from the Kodesh HaKodashim, inside of itself you have these, these tablets. To get, from, to get into those tablets you gotta pass by Kirubim. To get into the Kodesh HaKodashim, say it again? Ah, we're going to get to that. Perfect. What exactly are the Kirubim? The Kirubim, good question. It describes them in, in somewhat good amount of detail. It says that these Kirubim were these angelic looking figures. They were physical forms, which is, you might have a question about that. They had their wings outstretched and spread out, and they were facing each other. So the Kirubim were a symbol, according to Rabbi Salam Adi Sassoon, for the way that a leader or a member of B'nai Yisrael, for that matter, should conduct himself. So what is it? It's that they're, they're looking down while still looking at each other. So they're maintaining humility while th- always thinking about the other. But they have their wings outstretched to God. They're, they have wings. They have their physical forms. And that's the funny thing about it is what the heck is going on? At the center of all this action of our religion, this is a religion that says, well, what's the, one of the most important things in our religion? Idols. Idols. You know, not have any physical forms. And then you have, you go to the holiest place in the holiest thing and you see two, two idols, two physical forms. And it's like, how could this be? I think the question is supposed to lead you to the answer that I'm trying to lead up to and Esther hinted at it. Right? So you have, so we mentioned so far the Kirubim on top of the Aron. Right? On the Kaporet. And then we mentioned the Kirubim knitted into the Parochet. And then finally we're going to mention 
the Kirubim, whereas the third and only other time in the Mishkan that we see Kirubim, on the Yeriot themselves. The Yeriot separates the Hatser from the Kodesh, so, so which is the courtyard to get into the Holy. Right? So, if you want, let's say you're a member of B'nai Israel and you want to walk from the courtyard into the Mishkan, hypothetically, right? Then you would have to pass by the Kirubim, you would be seeing, it would be very clear to you, you you're, you're walking through the Yeriot, imagine it, these multicolored, beautiful Yeriot, and you're seeing inside, knitted into them, these Kirubim. And then you, you keep going, you say, okay, I'm in the Kodesh now. The, the, the pattern of Kirubim was knitted, the physical form. Imagine like you have a quilt kind of thing. You look at that quilt, you see different things, images knitted into them. I thought they were actual... So that's that's the, the that's the physical Kirubim inside. There's, there's three different Kirubim images in the Mishkan. The first, that. yes, a good... good. So this is the thing that nobody realizes. And when you once you realize it, you start to realize the real meaning behind them. Right? So you realize that they're, the famous ones are in the Kodesh Kodashim. But then two other ones appear knitted into physical fabric, right? So you see it in the parochet and you see it in the yeriot. So you walked you walked into the the kodesh and you saw kirubim. You're in the kodesh and you say, okay, what's that in there? You see the parochet, you see kirubim again, and then you want to go into the kodesh kodashim, and you walk in, imagine, and you see you see this this box with kirubim it's on on top, guarding the holiest object that we have. Which is the Aron, which is the the Luhota uh, Berit, right? The covenant, also guarded by Kirubim. So now Esther don't answer because I know no, Esther I knows the answer to this. You just told me before, so I know you know the answer. <laughs> what is the? I think the only other time in the Torah that we hear about about Kirubim, other than the Mishkan. Gan Eden. Very good. What guarding, do we, guarding let's read it. I think it's worth reading inside. Go to Bereshit. This is one of the most amazing, uh, you know, symbolic... What wings? What, say that again? Kiruvim means cherubs. Cherubs are angelic figures who have wings. Doesn't really mean wings, but Kanfahim is the wings. Yeah, so, so look at page... Go to Parashat Bereshit at the end. Here we go. Peregimal Pasuk, sorry, Pasuk Abed, it's page 11 in your Humashim. Right, so this is right after Adam Arishon and Hava eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now God has given them their, their punishments. And we see the following very interesting few Pasukim that I think are some of the deepest Pasukim in the entire Torah. And if you understand them, you understand something that's so fundamental about our religion, if you want to call it that, or our tradition, that I think is, is really, really important. So let's look at Pasuk Kafbet. Vayomer Adonai Elohim. And God says, Hen ha'adam hayaki ahad What does hen mean? Hen is like hineh. Behold. Right? It's ancient form of saying hineh. Behold. Ha'adam. What's ha'adam? Not adam. Ha'adam. The Adam. The species human. By the way, that's what we've been talking about in, in Gan Eden. The Adam means the human. Right? So the human species, have become like us. What does that mean? Who's God talking to, first of all? It's almost like God is speaking in the royal we, I think. You could say the angels. 
But it's almost like God is speaking as though he is multiple. There's some there's a concept of the royal we. Like when the king of an ancient uh, empire would say, we have decided to invade Persia. You know, that that he's really speaking on the behalf of his nation, but it's it's a way of speaking as himself, but in the in the plural form. Accept that however you want. But God is saying that basically the the humans have become like gods. Right? What wait, let me ask you a question. Why did we become like gods? What did we do to become like gods? We ate. We ate from Etzadat. Good. What is it? So now what happened? What changed? According to Adam we changed our way of viewing the world. We used to view the world without thinking, without our minds constantly playing the soundtrack in our heads. Exactly. So let me ask you a question. Elliot, when you're walking down the street in New York City, what are you thinking about? What are the thoughts going through your head? How I could get to the class on time. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> That's the right answer. I told him to say that. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so when we're walking around, when we're living our lives, it's almost as though we have this voice in our heads, the voice of knowledge in the words of Don Miguel Ruiz. I was listening a lot to his, his stuff, and I'll explain further on that soon. <laughs> But according to Don Miguel Luis, we have this, according to everybody's knowledge, we have this voice of knowledge that's constantly speaking in our minds. But that didn't used to exist before we ate from Etzadat. You can think of it like this. Human beings, before we evolved a cerebral cortex, which is the outermost portion of our brain, we were almost like animals in a sense. But not in a bad way. We didn't have this brain that's constantly speaking words. We didn't have this judge inside of us that's constantly putting us down or using its its voice for whatever purpose constantly. We were just alive. We just had this consciousness of the world around us. And that was a whole there was a holiness to that. That's Adam pre-apple. That's what we were meant to be as human beings it seems. Or maybe not. Maybe this is descriptive about the way things turned out and maybe it's not so bad, maybe it is. Right, so so we ate from Etzadat. What were we supposed to eat from? Everyone thinks that Adam was commanded by God not to eat from that tree over there. Right? God says, don't eat from that tree. But that's not the first thing he was commanded. What was the first thing Adam was commanded? Mikol et hagan achol tochel. Eat from all the, 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 the trees in the garden. Except for this one. For the one that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one that will change you from thinking about the world as truth, as emet, to tovara, to everything having a judgment. All right, so if you're an animal, you're, you're walking around, do you look around at the flower and say, that's, that's, that's good or that's bad? No, you don't say that. You just say, okay, that's, that's a flower and it's beautiful. Maybe you don't even have that thought. It's just a flower and you just appreciate it without putting words to it. Once we ate from Etzadat, it's a good flower, it's a bad flower, it smells good, it's, it's poisonous, whatever we want to have a judgment about it. That's what changed when we ate from Etzadat. So Adam goes from kind of a serene way of living to now with this voice of the judge constantly in his mind. So Adam was supposed to eat from all the trees, which includes what? It's a Haim. Right, Etzahayim, Betoch Hagan, was one of the trees. We were supposed to partake from Etzahayim, which is a completely different tree than Etzadat. What's Etzahayim? Etzahayim is the tree of life. And what does that mean? It seems like that would imply that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the opposite, is the tree of death. Why do I say that? 
Well, what did God say? Right? When you eat from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but Tamut, I think, right? Right? So you're gonna die. So it's it's the idea of death as opposed to life. Because something in us died when we ate from Etzadat. We lost the part of ourselves that was pure, that was just alive. And by the way, if you talk to anybody who meditates, and this is not only true... Well, they didn't actually die when they ate it. Good, they didn't physically die, but a part of them did die. And that's what I'm trying to explain. And they ended up dying later on, obviously, but a part of them died. That's when death was introduced. Exactly. And maybe, maybe if you live your life as a person pre-Apple, then you never die. Maybe that's what that's saying. Maybe if you're a person who's constantly partaking of Etzahayim, then you never die. Maybe that means that when you're alive and you're just living your life without this judge in your head and that's rating everything as good and bad and evil and, and not evil, maybe you're just alive and maybe you're at peace with the world. And every single tradition, you want to talk about the Hindus, the Buddhists, the you know, any Eastern tradition, the Western tradition, the, the Sufi mystics in the Arab lands, or you talk about the Kabbalists, or you talk about some of the Christian uh, mystics. Every one of these traditions is all coinciding on this idea. And that is the idea of when you meditate, you're going to try to turn off that brain. You're going to try to turn off that internal judge inside your head. And you're going to try to merge your consciousness with the consciousness of the divine. With the consciousness of God. And be objective. And be objective. Be like Karambam says, Sheket and Emet. Sorry, not Sheket and Emet. Be Emet. Sorry, yes, Emet and Sheket, instead of being a person that's thinking in terms of Tov good and evil. So let's keep reading. Mankind has now become like one of us, like a God almost. That's what changed. You're no longer thinking about the world in terms of Emet and Sheket. The flower is not just a flower anymore. Now it's a flower with a judgment about it, right? And now, now that he's eaten from Etzadat, maybe he'll send his hand. I just realized something unbelievable. It always happens every time I give a class, I realize something new. I was asking Rabbi Shama last week, right? If you read the Parashah on Shabbat, Parashah Mishpatim, there was another cryptic. Uh, thing going on where B'nai, uh, the elders with Moshe they're at the head of Har Sinai and they saw God it says literally they saw God right and what does it say under his feet got a feet right right was a sapphire brickwork under the feet of God and like the essence of the heavens in their purity. And what did what did it say? Israel, and to those nobles, God did not He didn't send his hand against them, which could mean he didn't punish them for seeing something they weren't supposed to see. Because then right after that it says, they ate and they drank, like something very physical. So something's going on over there. And I had a question. I said, what does it mean? God didn't send his hand against them. And I'm seeing that same phrase here. It's a pretty rare phrase. And I'm going to look into seeing if there's a connection between that very cryptic section that's very spiritual and God knows what's going on there 
and this one here. Ah, very good. Unbelievable. Also, I think Rambam translates like Achilah as like acquiring knowledge and not actually physically eating. Really? Oh, for sure. I think it's it's all yeah. The Harambam doesn't explain the act of eating from the, the tree of knowledge, right, of good and evil, as literally just eating from a tree. It represents imbibing a certain new way of thinking, right? You're digesting the world in a new way. Interesting. I have to. I would love to see that. You definitely let me know. Right. So, so So God's fear now. What's God's fear? He says now that man has eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he's changed his perspective on the world. I'm afraid that he's going to eat from etzahayim. And we said already that wasn't a problem beforehand. It was only a problem to eat from etzadat. God wanted us to eat from Etzahayim originally. But now that we've eaten from Etzadat, we should not eat from Etzahayim. From right? And maybe he'll eat and live forever. So God sends Adam and Hava out of Gan Eden to work the land from which he was taken. Meaning he was put in Gan Eden, now he's been kicked out, and he has to work the land, which he didn't have to beforehand. And that was his punishment. And God kicks out man from the garden. And now this is a really important thing. And God stations east of Eden, this is the only other time in the whole Torah where we see Kerubim. You think there's a connection? I think so. Right? And the fiery spinning sword. God had like this propeller sword with a kerub, right? With a with a couple of of uh, angels, angelic figures, guarding guarding the way to the tree of life. Because God's biggest fear now is that now that we've eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, now that we've changed our perspective, we can't eat from etzahayim. Does anybody know another pasuk in the Tanakh? And I'll give you a hint. We say it every Saturday. That has the words et haim. Very good. When do we say that? Beautiful. I was wondering, like, why is amen? Why is um one tree associated with like a whole concept, right? And then the consequence is death, and then one tree is actually associated with life, but there's no. There's no additional information. That if he eats it, he'll live forever. The other one, you eat it, you die. It says? Yeah, it says right here. It's like originally when Hashem... Oh, no, it says it here, though. Right, so now, because like originally, it, originally it was understood you were going to live forever, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think that's what... It's an intrinsic property of the thing. So it's saying, though, that the Etzachayim can, can undo the Etzadat. Ah, very interesting. I never thought of that. saying that this will work. It'll this would be a way of kind of cheating the system, you're saying. Yeah. Very interesting. I have yeah, to think about that. Uh, yeah. Concept. Why were they so skewed to not just go ahead and eat from the Zafayim originally? That's a very good question. I think they, they oh, exactly, they opened themselves to the Nahash way of thinking. They open themselves to that negative way of thinking, where whatever it was that did so that. the original Tovara that's like creeping in. Very good. Then exactly. They kind of 
injected in themselves. Exactly. They accepted that. Right? You know, what's interesting is that the Nahash, what does it say? Nahash haya arum mikol hayat It was cunning from all the hayat from all the animals. It was the most cunning. The word hayat only appears one other time. Right before that, what does it say? Or in Bereshit at least. What did it say? Right before that, it said, God brought all hayat before Adam. And everything that he called the name to that animal, that would be its name. So that what that means is the Nahash is a representative of animal kind going up to Adam and saying, you think you're better than us? You think you could be more than us? You think you could straddle that line between physical and spiritual better than we can? No, 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 you're not. You're just one of us. And I'm going to show you that. I'm going to open you up to that way of thinking. So... This connection between Bereshit and the Mishkan. We said there's Kirubim. And we said there's three separations going on in the Mishkan. Do you know anything about separations in Bereshit? Does God separate anything in Bereshit? Separate the Rakia. Maim. Good. Rakia. What else? The other two are difficult. Day and night. Day and night. Very good. One more. Shabbat. That, that's oh, that's on a hajjah Shabbat. Not really using the word. I'm looking for the word lahavdil. It's a tif, it's a tough one. It's that when God creates the the celestial bodies and the planets. Lahavdil Maybe it's benayom Is that what you said? Or maybe Elliot said that. Good. So first it says God created light and darkness on the first day. And what does it what does it say? He separated the the light from the dark. Whatever that means. It sounds like energy. It sounds like light energy, dark energy, if you want to really get into physics. I don't know if that's really what it's saying. But there's something really deep about the separation of energy on the first day. And then you look the second day. Right? What did God separate? He separates the waters. Right? So that's energy. Now, separating waters. You know, you have to remember the Torah is written for people that didn't have the same scientific terms that we have. So you talk about energy is light. Second day, water, separation of water, what does that mean? If I'm talking to a person, I say, oh, the space between us right now, what is it? Oh, it's empty space. Wasn't the heaven and the earth was all water? Yes, it was all water. Now that God separates it, good. Why did he separate it? To give us space. Right? That's the way an ancient person would see, right? If there's there's water everywhere, there's nowhere for me to be. I'm going to drown. I'm going to die. So God had to move the water into the firmament and into into the ground and into the oceans. Right? Because that gives me space. So you have energy on the first day, you have space on the second day. Very fundamental physical concepts. What's the third physical concept created on the fourth day? God creates the celestial bodies. And God says, Lehavdil, right? Ben Ayom, Ben Alayla, I think. That they're going to signify time. When you look at the sun, the moon, the stars, there are going to be ways of detecting different times. So the point here is that God created through separation energy, space, and time. The most fundamental physical concepts you could think of. And he kicks Adam out of the garden after all this is said and done. It's, and the, the thing blocking him is the Kirubim. The Kirubim are leading him towards the Etzahayim. And we said Etzahayim could mean something like the Torah. It could mean the Torah in its purity, its purest form. The purest form of studying Torah is this. Is this Etz Ba. To those who latch on to it, the Torah is an Etz Because it gives us 
an everlasting life. What does that mean? If you're a person that's living only for now in the sense that you don't invest in the future, you don't invest in deeper concepts, you just lead your life as though nothing matters, you have nothing to grasp onto. It's almost like you lived like an animal, you died like an animal. But I'm in none. No legacy, nothing to latch onto. Right? But what the point is, is that you should, if you do grasp onto the Torah and its wisdom, you will have a way to, to latch onto life. So God has three separations in Bereshit. And like we said, there's three separations in the Mishkan. And what if I told you that those three separations correspond pretty darn well to one another? So we mentioned walking into the Mishkan. What does it say? The Kohen Gadol is not, to go into the, not allowed to go into the Kodesh What's Ayat? Time, at every time. That's the third thing God created. Right, so it's emanating from outwards. Right, so you're not allowed to go into the Kodesh at every time, so that's time. And then, what does it say about the Kodesh HaKodeshi? And the Hachamim make a very strange outlandish Midrash. Which makes a, a little bit of sense because, or a lot of bit of sense, because you read the text, and what does it say? The text tells us the dimensions of the Kodesh HaKodashim. And it also tells us the dimensions of the Aron. And something's going on there because the Aron doesn't fit into the dimensions of the Kodesh HaKodashim. There's something strange going on there. It's almost like a discrepancy. Ha, ha, it's impossible. It's like saying I'm going to fit a 4x4 four four square into a 2x2 two two square. It just doesn't fit. So it's almost like the Torah is telling us the Kodesh HaKodashim is beyond space. So you had time, now you have space. And then what's the third thing that we mentioned, right? So we said the third thing God created was time. We did that. Second thing God had created was space. We did that, right? The, the discrepancy of the measurements of everything in the, in the Kodesh HaKodashim. What's the last thing? Energy. The order, the energy, Right? What is the Torah? The Torah, the Hachamim have another Midrash, they say. Say it again. The Torah is like white fire written on black fire. What in the world does that mean? Why are the Hachamim saying that? It's like light fire or white fire written on black fire. That's the, that's the way the Hachamim talk about the Torah. Like the, letters the letters, something's going on there about the energy. The Torah represents the energy of the world. The awe of the world, right? We're supposed to be la goyim. We're supposed to be something about the Torah representing the purest of energies in the world. So we're showing here that the Mishkan is supposed to be a recreation of Bereshit, in a sense. Also with the menorah and the, and the bread, Nathanim um, transcend time because it's supposedly fresh from one week to Beautiful. another. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. And that, and they're located in the, in the right spot. Exactly. The point of all this is that what? why did God create the world? I mean, can I ask a more deep question than that? Can I ask a more difficult question than that? The Torah. To bring the Torah, good, and to have a relationship maybe with us, the way the Torah is, is explaining it, is, I love the way Rabbi Heschel explains it, is God in search of man. God is seeking out a relationship with humankind. He wants to connect to us. And more than that, like we said, I find myself like every week talking about this pasuk, right? What does it say in Ha'azinu? God is like this turtle dove or an eagle hovering above its young. 
right? It was Bnei Yisrael. God's invested in Bnei Yisrael. Same thing, same imagery going on with Ruach Elohim The Spirit of God hovering on the face of the deep of the waters is God Himself is invested in creation. He cares about His creation. He is lit up into all of creation. His energy is in all of creation. It's interesting because with Miriam and Moshe and the whole concept of water and that she, her reward was water and the hovering of Hashem over B'nai Israel, I feel like that's a very... Wow, and she's always mentioned with water. That. Yeah. Right, if the Kiri Suf, we see her again, right, she starts singing a song yeah. out of nowhere and, and you know, uh, the Be'er Miriam that the Hachamim talk about. Yeah. It's amazing. There's a lot of stuff going on, more, actually, obviously with Moshe in the beginning by the river. Yeah. That's amazing. Really beautiful. Um, so so all of this... What yeah. your answer? Why do you think Hashem So God is creating the world because He wants to have a relationship. And Kibiachol, this is the best we could put it in human terms. But God wants to have a relationship with creation. He wants to have creation, be creative. Right? Right? God created creation to be creative. That's what it literally means. And in order to know Him. And we are, as, as B'nai Yisrael, the culmination of that. Right? We mentioned another time that the Torah is echoing Ma'asib Rashid is when? During Kiri'at Yamsuf. Right? We mentioned, Again, Oren Hoshech. Right? We mentioned that the cloud of God was lighting up the night and there's light and darkness again. And then what do we see right after that? The separation of the water, just like the separation of waters. And then we see the, the appearance of dry land, just like we saw on the third day of creation. And then the Hakami make this crazy midrash again, that the fruit was growing on the side, because that's paralleling the next thing that should have happened in Bereshit. So what is that saying to us? That was to tell us, at that time we interpreted it as, this is the next phase of Ma'asib Bereshit. Right, Ma'asib Bereshit, the goal that God had, is culminating itself now. In Because God's whole point of creating the world, the Torah is saying, is to get to know creation. To be invested in it and have it have a relationship with Him. And He tried and it failed with Adam. And failed again with Cain and Hevel. And, Noah. and then it failed again right with Noah. And Dora Pelaga. And then God started over again with one guy. He said, I'm not, I can't do this with all humanity again. I'm going to start with Abraham Avinu. And, it, and the culmination of that new relationship with Abraham ends in, or really begins as a nationhood for B'nai Yisrael leaving the Yamsuf. It's the birth of a new nation. That's why God is giving us a new Genesis, right, with all the Genesis terms. And he's saying, this is why I created the world. In case you were wondering, I did it for this moment. I did it so I could take you out. I did it so I could give you the Torah. I, I did it so when you get the Torah, you could be the kind of people that are going to be a light unto the world. And you could bring my light into everybody's lives. And you could teach everybody that everyone is a sin of Elohim. Every person, every spirit is a manifestation and an emanation of God. So God created the world almost like a separation of himself. Could be a whole right, you know how the, the Kabbalists like to say, I'm getting very mystical in this class, right? The, the Kabbalists like to say that God had simtsum. God had like a separation of himself in order to create the world. Right? It was like a chesed. Right? This is like a chesed, right? It's almost like a removal of himself. How could that be an infinite being? How could there be an infinite being and finite beings? How is there room for us? It's because God separated or, or you know, subtracted of himself. So what are we doing when we're creating the Mishkan? So God creates a space in the world 
for us to grow and live and develop into beings that have free will, that could be like Him and know Him and choose to be in a relationship with Him by going back to the garden. And He created the world for that purpose. And then what are we doing? What is this act of love that we're doing in this week's parasha? What did God say? Just like I created the world to be a mikdash for B'nai Israel, I subtracted of myself to allow B'nai Israel's spirit to grow and develop and connect to me and realize that they really are just manifestations of me. And now B'nai Israel are, separ- are, are separating and allocating a space in this world for God. It's, it's a reciprocal action. And that explains exactly why it was that there were three separations in Be'eshit, three separations here. B'nai Yisrael is saying, God, you taught us something. You separated three times, we're separating three times. You put Kirubim to guard the way to the Etz HaHaim, we're putting Kirubim to guard the way to what we know to be the Etz HaHaim and the way to get closer to you. And we know that there's manifestations and emanations of your spirit from the center outwards. And the text makes that very clear. It's also like a huge testament to the way we can teach people to believe in God, that he's not bound by space or time or energy. Yeah. And when you go into the Mishkan and you see that transcendence, that you really feel that sense of emunah, that sense of like, that God is really there. A hundred percent. when you're in your real mundane life, you feel that how is it possible that... There's so many limits. How is it possible that there could be somebody that's omniscient? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no more beautiful way of doing it than expressing it in this physical form. But I think now to get to the next phase of what we want to say. First of all, is there any questions so far? Any comments? When are we going to talk about the meditation? Ah, that was my next point. Very good. Beautiful. Well, leaving yes. the sheet, I always yeah. felt that Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree... They were kind of like hippies. Yeah. And once they ate from the tree, they turned into like suits. Yeah. And they had responsibility. Yeah. So being hippies, everything was free and easy. They had nothing. Yeah. Bob Marley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say. But <laughs> you know. And then after once they ate, then yeah. the responsible suits yes. work. They understood that, the. That's yeah. What I envisioned. It. Yeah. I mean, since you went there, right? for you sure. Going there, yes. But you went no, there. I think I used to think about it that way, a hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Were you a hippie in those days? I mean, I want to go there. I'm not going to. There's a recording here. I'm not going to. Yeah. We're going to get pictures of Elliot. Right. So I think you're right. I think that that's what did happen. But I don't think that that was necessarily. I think there are good and bad elements to it. I think the Torah is saying, yeah, it's good. You became like God in the sense that you could know God and choose to know God and have a relationship with Him. That's beautiful. But on the, on the other hand, there's a little bit of something that's that's missing here. Where we can't walk with God in the garden anymore. We're not as close to Him as we used to be. Things have changed. I think it's descriptive about the way things played out. Once we developed the brain that we did, that's what happened. Right. So now to get to the meditation point. Rabbi, we mentioned in the beginning, right? That the Mishkan has a layout of a face, right? It almost looks like God's face, Kibiachol. And hovering above the brain of that face, right? What's the brain? We mentioned already that the brain is, is the 
the the cloud. the aron, I, I would say, and then the mind is the cloud, right? Good. So the cloud is like the mind. That's the cloud of God. And then you have one day a year on Yom Kippur. What happens? Kohen Gadol, Gadol goes in. What does he do? Say it again. Good. He does the blood sprinkling. What else does he do? He does one more thing. He he lights a fire and lights the ketoret. And the anan of the ketoret, it says in the text, mixes with the anan of God. The anana ketoret, which is human produced, right? It represents everything on the behalf of humanity of Bnei Yisrael. Is being lit, and there's a special thing that he puts in there to make a lot of smoke, and then that smoke commingles with the cloud of God. That's meditation. What, am I, what do I mean when I say that's meditation? Meditation is a way of almost like walking through the rooms of the Mishkan. We mentioned you have to think about space, time, and energy in order to get to that center. You have to allow those things to fall away. It's almost like when you walk into the Mishkan, you're walking into a place that's beyond time, right? And then you're walking to a place that's beyond space, and then you're walking into a place that's beyond energy, and it's formless. And you go back to the way of everything being just God, which it really truly is at the end of the day. This world that we look at, according to quantum physics you ever you ever i'm gonna get a little heavy on you here um you ever hear the double slit experiment double, double slit experiment it's a great five minute video i'll try to explain it to you now imagine you have a wall that wall over there and imagine you have a wall here with two slits in it just two slits imagine i'm taking baseballs and i'm throwing them at the wall as many times as i, I can or imagine tomatoes rotten tomatoes right what's the pattern going to be in the back wall two lines, right, where the two slits were. Let's say I take water, and I take a water wave, and I push it against this double slit. There's going to be something called a diffraction pattern at the end of the wall. It's not going to be just two lines. The water waves are going to interact with each other in a certain way that creates lines like this, right? And where there's no line, there was destructive interference, meaning the waves canceled each other out. And where there is a line, it's where the waves were adding to each other to be the most that they could be. Which says something about there's a difference between physical particles, right, like tomatoes, and waves, right? So particles versus waves. That's simple physics for you, right? You could have a water wave, you could have tomatoes. You could have waves or particles. Now you go down to the subatomic level where everything's made up of these, right, what's an atom? An atom is... Uh, uh, neutrons, protons in the in the nucleus, and then electrons and a cloud of probability surrounding it. That's the best way I could put it. So now you take electrons and you start shooting them through this double slit. They, they've done this. You could look it up. Now, if I ask you, what's an electron? It's a par particle, right? Electron is a particle. So I take electrons and I start shooting them at this double slit. And sure enough, I look at the back wall, what do I see? Just like I saw with the tomatoes, I see two lines of electrons. I say, okay, whoop-de-doo. All right, that's what I expected. And then they did something that changed the way 
that we understand reality. And if you've never heard this before, and I say hold on to your seats, because this is really an amazing thing in my opinion. They shot the electrons again, but this time they said, we're not going to look while we're shooting the electrons. We're just going to look after the fact. And they looked, and they saw a diffraction pattern, like you saw with the water wave. So they said, let's do this again looking. And they looked, and there was two lines. And then they said, let's do it again without looking, and it was diffraction pattern. What does that mean? That means that matter changes the way that it behaves, whether or not there's a human perspective to watch it happen, at least on the subatomic level. The human perspective changes the way that reality behaves. Is there anything more radical than that? Does that make any sense to you? The answer should be no, because we don't know the world that way. I look at a cup, I see a cup. I don't see waves going on here. But according to physics, the cup is not really just solidly there. The cup is really between this point and this point, a little bit further that way, a little bit further that way than you're seeing. But when you look at it, it collapses the wave function, and it just becomes this. At least at the subatomic level, that's true. At the, at the higher level of reality, there's a huge debate going on about how this really works. So what this is saying is that, that the human perspective changes the way that we understand reality. So God really is all that there is from a physical standpoint. The world that we know is really an illusion, possibly, according to one shita. That the world doesn't exist this way. It's just that we humans, when there's a perspective, a human perspective, for some reason, changes everything and makes it seem like the stuff is physical. But then when the human perspective is not there, it just goes back into being a wave of potentialities. So what that's saying is that really all that there is is God. But the human perspective makes us see things as separate. I see a chair, I see a book, I see a table, I see a cup. But when you meditate, you're walking into that mishkan again. You're trying to go through the blueprints. And I hired a rabbi in Israel that would every Yom Kippur, especially, he, he meditated every single day, but he would do a special meditation where he really would try to get beyond time and beyond space. And he said he would be able to do it. But what's he thinking? He's not thinking anything. That's the point. Like we spoke about earlier, the, the voice of knowledge in the human mind, this, this, this soundtrack that we have, is the thing that's separating us from God. It's, that's the da'atobvara. That's the apple. Right? The apple is producing this thing. You want to go back to, to, to Emet and check it? No, it's not. No? Nope. Maybe. Two minutes, okay. So, yeah, so... My, so what happens, <laughs> what happens when one person meditates? When a, when a person meditates, basically, I meditate every day, it's mindfulness. It's trying to turn off that, that voice inside your head that's constant. It's not thinking happy thoughts. It's not what meditation is. A lot of people, there's certain types of meditation that might be that way. Meditation is trying to focus on just be. No, it's just trying to focus on sensations that are happening around you. And, and it's really trying to turn off thought. So I don't have that much time left. So I'll open it up for questions, but I just want to end with this, is that master meditators from every tradition had this goal. They had this goal of turning off the soundtrack in the, in the mind and the brain in order to re-merge the cloud of the ketod, of the cloud of God, which is another way of saying, just realize again what you are, which is a piece of God. You're a light of God that's emanating into the human soul, into the human eyes, into the human brain, into all the senses. 
And when you meditate, and when you're mindful, that's something that you realize.